Okay, I'm going to read so long. (laughs) Okay, let's read Philippians 1, 3 to 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thanks, Shireen. I have to admit that leading up to this week, I looked for a t-shirt that said, I love cats, so I could wear it to preach in, to atone for my sins last week. There's not one. Anyway, I couldn't find one for sale. Um, But so good to be with you this morning. And um, when I was starting to prepare this message, I knew that I wanted to preach out of the book of Philippians. I absolutely love the book of Philippians, and where better to start than the beginning of the book? And maybe you can put those words back up that Shireen just read, because I felt like I also so deeply resonated with these words. And for us as a leadership team here at Common Ground Bloberg, I felt like I could say, you know, actually, we thank God every time we remember you, Common Ground Bloberg. And with always, in all our prayers for all of you, we always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And just like the swelling up of love and of enjoyment and of gospel partnership that we get to enjoy as a church. Um, forgive me if you are visiting us, and this is I'm a bit sentimental and I really like looking back. And um, I found this photo. Um, this was in 2015, the, the year that a group of us planted what was then Common Ground Table View. Who was around in 2015 in this church out of interest? Beautiful. We are living in many of the answered prayers that we prayed all those years ago. And when I read verses like these that says, I thank God in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your gospel partnership from this day until now. And even if you weren't there on this day, still there's this beautiful gospel partnership. And so, yes, I resonated so deeply with um, with these words of Paul, but as I was preparing, like so often happens, um, God really had my number on many of these things, and more than just resonating with these words, I felt like he spoke to me so deeply, and I, and I hope that you um, as well experience some of that as we explore this passage. So let's dive in a little bit. The background to these words, maybe we can go back to the passage of Scripture. The background to these words is that Paul has been arrested. He is awaiting trial. He's in captivity. He's in his 60s, early 60s. People think he's around 62. And um, he's awaiting trial, but he's under house arrest. But I don't want you to think house arrest like we imagine it, like you're in your house and someone just comes to check that you haven't fled the country. This is actually, when you were in house arrest, you had to stay in a certain type of housing that you had to rent, so you were literally paying to be in prison, but none of your needs were being met by the state, so things like your food, your water, healthcare, you were at the mercy of friends and family. And at this time, just before this, Paul had actually thought, has everybody forgotten me? Has everybody forgotten me? He was chained almost 24 hours a day to a Roman guard. This is where he's penning these words. So whether he's um, kind of dictating them and someone's writing them down or whether he's writing them, this is where he is. This is what his context looks like. This is not his cell, but there's a photo of what they think possibly if we can go. This is kind of what the apartment would look like. You can picture him there. It's the apartment Paul had to rent while he was awaiting trial. And 
There's this group of people who have not forgotten about Paul, and that's the church in Philippi. Some of you may be familiar with the story. We hear it in Acts where the first, the kind of three founding members, if you want to call it that, you know, we were all there, some of us, on the, in 2015 in that photo. The three people that would have been in the church of Philippi's photo was um, Lydia, who was a wealthy tradeswoman who traded in cloth. She was essentially in the fashion industry. There was a demon-possessed little girl who had been um, human trafficked, essentially, and there was a Roman god. So those three people, and then this church had kind of grown into a, a bigger group of, uh, you know, a, a fully-fledged church. And there was deep friendship between Paul and this group of people. And this group of people, hearing about Paul in chains, they take up a, up a financial offering and they send it. This, the person, Epaphroditus, we talk about names that you might want to name your kid. There's another one. Epaphroditus has been sent from uh, Philippi to where Paul is. He had to travel over a huge distance. It was something like over 800 miles. When he got to Paul with this amount of money to, you know, quite literally keep Paul going, he was desperately ill. Part of the financial offering that the Philippian church would have sent was probably even spent on Epaphroditus' health care, but Paul is still filled with such gratitude and such joy. And he writes this letter to this group of people to thank them for this gospel partnership, this financial gift, but also just to encourage them in God and what God is doing among them. So you can keep this picture in your mind and, and keep that story in your mind as we read these words because this is where they are being penned from. And I want you to imagine for a second, you know, this church, this Philippian church was very, very dear to Paul. He had been there from, from day dot, and he deeply cared for the people in this church. And I want you to imagine for a second something really dear to you. Maybe it is um, a business that you um, are started or are now are a part of, and the end goal of this business or where it's going is very important to you. Maybe it's a community project that you're a part of, and the end goal of what's going to happen on the other side is deeply meaningful to you. Very difficult one for me to think about is my children, my, my life's most important task. What happens to them on the other side is really important to me. It's kind of how Paul felt about the Philippian church was there from the beginning. What happens to you on the other side is really important to me. But Paul is writing these words, possibly never to see these people again. He probably doesn't have any expectation, even though he loves them so dearly. But yet there seems to be this deep confidence, this deep, we can maybe put the, the, the passage back up, this deep joy, and it pervades through the whole book of Philippians, this peace and this contentedness and this confidence, we even see that word confidence, in God, and that God is going to do the work, that God started it, and he is faithful. He's going to bring it to completion. How do you find that kind of joy? How do you find that kind of peace? How do you find that joy in a prison cell? How do you find that joy in such difficult circumstances? How do we find joy? And I, I hope that we're going to uncover a little bit of that today. Um, a very dear friend of mine, a very dear friend of so many of you in this room, was recently diagnosed with cancer. And um, she was, she was, you know, kind of started her um, chemotherapy journey, and we were chatting back and forth about, the one, she was a few sessions into the chemo, and uh, we were chatting back and forth. How is it going? I was asking her, and um, we were WhatsApping. And she had kind of replied, quite a long reply, to let me know exactly how it had been going, and um, just catching us up on a few things. And at the end of her message, she typed this, and I asked her if I could share it with you. 
she said, so that was the top of her message, and then she said, I hope you are well. We are praying for you and your family too. What can we pray for for you this week? And if it was anybody else, I would have thought it's probably a waste of time to let a person who's going through chemo, dealing with a cancer diagnosis, know how they can pray for me and my little family who's actually quite fine right now. But if you know who this person is, you know that she did pray, and she would have prayed, and she would have prayed with joy. And I was confident of that, and I replied with some things that she could pray for. How do you find joy while facing a cancer diagnosis? How do you find joy while going through chemotherapy? How do you find joy while sitting in a prison cell? How do you find joy while dealing with unemployment? Or sleeplessly raising small children and dealing with overwhelm? How do you find joy when you've been broken up with or just not being able to make ends meet at the end of the month or whatever else it might, you might be facing? How do we find joy? And we live in a world where joy is, um, is we feel a little bit entitled to it. Um, even in, in our world, you know, the world knows the difference. You know, there's joy is one thing, happiness is another. But I would say that what, what the world offers to us as joy is actually happiness. And that's why we, we're happy on the weekend and we're sad on Monday. We're happy when work is easy and we're sad when it's hard. We're happy when the money is coming through and we're sad when it's not. We're happy when things are going our way and we're sad when they're not. It's just the way life goes because happiness goes like this and it's not wrong. Sometimes we are happier than others. That's okay. But there seems to be this joy offered to us in Scripture and we see it, this, this, like, this joy experience that is so deep and I want that joy, and I want, I want it for us as a church, but how do we get it? How do we find that joy? Let's uncover it a little bit. I'm going to start by looking at verse 3. It says, maybe we can put the passage up. It says, I always thank my, I thank my God every time I remember you, verse 3. And this is really a line that speaks about carrying people in your heart, carrying people in your heart. This is a, a value for us as a church. If you are visiting with us today, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we've got this thing totally waxed and we perfectly carry people in our heart, but this is something we want to grow in. It's something that so deeply matters to us as a church, carrying people in our heart. If you've spent any amount of time with little children, I spend a lot of time with small children. Three live with me in my house. Um, and you will know that children are incredibly self-centered, they, they are born that way, really. It's a survival thing. They're born to think about themselves. And you know that actually one of the most beautiful things, and we're seeing it now as our kids get older, they begin to realize, oh, what I say makes someone else feel a certain way. You know, and, and my actions, they actually impact other people. And how I behave has, you know, consequences. I can make someone feel happy. I can, you know, encourage someone. Younger children... I won't mention names of children in my house. <laughs> you know, they say, I want to sit here and I don't care if you want to sit here. I want to eat this salty crack and I don't care if you want, wanted to eat this salty crack. I want to go first and I don't care if you wanted to go first. And, I, you know, I can even remember it in my own life. My parents often saying to me, do you know that the world doesn't revolve around you? And I would say like, of course I know that, mom. But actually, deep down, I didn't. And I think I'm still dealing with the fact that the world doesn't revolve around me. I think we all are. But part of growing up as a, a human being is to realize that the world doesn't revolve around us and to carry 
other people on our hearts and to be mindful of other people and what they're going through. And the same is in uh, of our walk with God and of our faith and in Christianity, where actually a mark of maturity is being mindful of others, carrying other people in your heart, loving other people. And this isn't just as simple as, hey, thinking about you, thinking about you, how are you going, thinking about you. It's a good place to start, a WhatsApp that says thinking about you. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is something a little bit deeper. um, Some of you may have heard of Tim Keller, who's um, a renowned church leader and author. He said this amazing phrase that's always stuck with Roger and I. He says, catch a glimpse of someone else's glory self. Sounds like someone who's gone through an extreme makeover and they come through like, this is my glory self. It's not that. I want you to actually picture someone right now. Maybe it's the person next to you, if that's your spouse or your sibling or a friend that you came with, someone that you know really well, and picture that person totally devoid of all... I'm watching Mark look at Shane, trying to picture Shane. (laughs) It's like staring so deeply at him. Um, But picture that person just where there is no sin, no pride, no brokenness. This person is completely whole and completely perfect exactly who God made them to be, who they're going to be, you know, when, when they're perfect, one day when they get in the new heavens and the new earth. And really carrying people in your heart is you catch a vision for the glory self. You catch a vision for who they are becoming in God and you carry their flourishing. Yes, it can start with a text message that says, thinking of you, but it doesn't end there. Catch a glimpse of who the people around you are becoming in God and carry that in your heart. And I'm going to ask us to pause now and just reflect because the last two years, I keep saying the last two years, it's longer than two years, two and a half years, have been really hard. And a lot of us have been in survival mode. And I think that's had an impact on the way that we carry people in our heart because we've been so mindful of our little nuclear family or just the people very close to us. Has your life shrunk a little bit over the last two years when it comes to carrying people, when it comes to being mindful of other people, when it comes to your your prayer for other people? How is our thought life when it comes to thinking about others? Are we so caught up in our own lives that we can't even spare a thought for other people, let alone a prayer, let alone a prayer with joy? Are our hearts being formed into maturity and are we learning to carry people more and more? One of the best ways that we can carry people on our hearts is to pray for them. And one of the best ways, what happens when we pray for people is we inevitably end up carrying those people on our hearts. So it's a wonderful life-giving cycle, really. Um, But again, this is a value of who we are, carrying people in our hearts. And I so see that that is um, Paul's heart when he is carrying this Philippian church in his heart in such a profound way. Now, I want to jump ahead a little bit. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 6 that says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, don't worry, those of you who are like, hey, you just skipped over praying and joy and partnership in the gospel. We're going to get there. But this part influences that part, so I wanted to jump forward a little bit. So being confident of this, he who began the good work in you. What is this good work? 
I want to suggest that it's kind of threefold. The first good work is the work of salvation. You know, the, the Philippian church, Paul is speaking to them, but the same is for us. God had brought them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So salvation, the work of salvation, seeing Jesus for who he is. The second component of that work is it didn't end there, that the gospel taking root in their heart then led to the fruits of holiness and righteousness in their life. They, were, they would become more and more who God was making them to be. That's called a work of sanctification or a word that we use often as formation, who these people were becoming. And then thirdly, they started to spread the gospel themselves. So this good work is threefold, work of salvation, work of sanctification, and then partnering in the spreading of the gospel themselves. But I want to focus on that phrase, the day of Christ Jesus, the day of Christ Jesus. In other places in scripture, it's called um, the day of the Lord or judgment day. You might be more familiar with that term. But that word judgment day is more accurately understood in these words, the setting of all things at right. I'm going to say it again and let it sink in because we might have a hangover of some wrong understanding or wacky understanding of Judgment Day, the setting of all things at right. You see, there is coming a day where there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more divide between us and the Father. God's kingdom will be fully come. Yes, his kingdom has come, and through Jesus' life and death and his resurrection, the kingdom has come. And even now, while we're, while we're here living in the middle, we see little bits and pieces of, of the kingdom, evidences that God's kingdom has come, but there will be a day where his kingdom will fully come, and he will fully complete the work, the work of salvation and sanctification and of the spreading of the gospel. The work that he started will be completed, and we're here in the middle. And it reminds me of Jesus teaching us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come. The day of Christ Jesus is the coming, the full coming of the kingdom of God. But we live here, and we live in this messy middle part. Some people call it the now and the not yet. We live in both of those things. The kingdom has come, but it hasn't fully come. But it seems to be, this is a little key of how Paul finds his joy in a prison cell and how people can find joy when they're going through immense suffering is the certainty of the future. We all, I mean, how many times have we all said it now after the last few years? The one thing we can't be certain of is the future. Anything can happen or you just don't know what's about, you know, what's about to come. Maybe it's the next pandemic or another lockdown, whatever it might be. Can't be certain of the future. Oh, but we can be certain of this. That day with a capital T and a capital D. That day, the setting right of all things. And this certainty about the future seems to give Paul an incredible confidence and an incredible joy and an incredible peace. And I think that's where his joy comes from. And I think it should do the same for us. And it really gives, it, it gives Paul this, this kind of where you can't put your finger on his writing. I think there is this certainty, this kind of inexplicable certainty that he has in, in the future. This, the completer of the work. He will complete it. He started it and he will complete it. Some of you, if you have been to our house, might know that my husband is a very um, uh, avid woodworker. Our garage is not really a garage. It's more a workshop, layers of sawdust or dust everywhere. 
But Rog was introduced to woodwork by a family friend of theirs when he was about six years old. Uncle Bob introduced him and his friend to woodwork from in his workshop. And um, one of the first very random things that they learned how to make was a pipe. No, he didn't smoke it, I'm told, when he was six. I don't know, actually. But... Um, Right, he was so little, and he, Uncle Bob kind of started this pipe off, so he cut the pieces of wood, and he said, this is how you do it, but let the boys do it. They would come back once a week, and, you know, whatever you do to a pipe, to make it into a pipe. Um, and in Roger's own words, he absolutely duffed this pipe. Like, there was just, you know, whatever, splinters coming off it, and it was the wrong shape, and it was not smooth. And he left the one week feeling so dejected and discouraged at his pipe, and he was never going to be able to smoke it. Um, <laughs> um, and anyway, he came back the, the next week, and Uncle Bob had completed his pipe, and he had perfected it, and it was beautiful. Roger still has it today. He doesn't smoke it. Don't worry. But um, Uncle Bob had perfected this pipe. He had started the pipe. Roger had got to partner with him in some of the pipe, but he completed it, and he perfected it. And you would think that that would turn my husband off woodwork, like, oh, well, you know, he has this guy, I can't complete anything, he has to complete it anyway. But in fact, it did quite the opposite, because he saw what was possible of what could happen, the beauty of a completed work. And there is something of that kind of mysterious appetite that gets stirred up in us, because I don't know about you, but I find this confidence that Paul has in his certainty of the future, that God is going to complete the work and that he is going to, you know, he started it, he's going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, that doesn't make me, for some reason, want to go like, okay, well, he's going to do it. What do I have to do? In fact, it stirs up within me almost that childlike appetite. Wow, I get to be part of this. But it's not all up to me. He's going to do it. He's lifting the heavy weight. I just kind of get to go along for the ride with deep trust and deep joy that he's doing the hard work. We're going to look now at verse 4. Maybe we can put that passage up. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So pray. Why do we pray? I read uh, John Mark Comer. He said, we pray because God started a good work, but God is not done yet. We pray because there is a gap. We pray because there is a gap. Now, we all think we should pray more, even me now saying the words pray more. I bet you a few of you in this room have already gone like, this week, this is the week. I'm going to pray a little bit more. And yeah, we should all want to pray more. That's a great thing. But I think actually we need to deal with a little bit of a deeper heart motivation when it comes to prayer. And this is where I really felt like this week God had my number freshly around prayer, because I think that I sometimes am prone to believing lies about God and believing lies about prayer that actually kind of just stifle my prayer life. And there are more than two, but the two that I kind of um, stumbled upon this week when someone writing about prayer that resonated with me, the first lie is that I actually don't believe that prayer can change anything. That feeling of what will be, will be. What's going to happen is going to happen. I don't really believe that I can change anything. The second lie that I believe is that I actually can change things. And so why pray? 
But imagine how our appetite for prayer will increase when we start to understand that our God-breathed prayers inside of us, when they align with what God is doing as he brings his kingdom on this earth, that the creator God stops and he engages and he listens and he responds. And my prayers can move the hand of God. Prayers can change things. God had my number on this this week. And not in, in, in the least way, a kind of a condemning way, but my appetite for prayer and my motivation for prayer, I felt like it's just been, um, the, the heat has just been turned up on this. And imagine what would happen when we realize that in a meaningful way, I actually can't change things. I might be able to change some things, but I actually can't. On the things that really matter, I actually can't change things. This week, my challenge to you is to start with prayer. I think often we um, end with prayer. We like end the church meeting with prayer. So we often, we tease, we've got this friend who when he feels like people have overstayed their welcome after dinner, he'll say, let's pray. <laughs> it's basically code for, go home. <laughs> this, we're done. <laughs> and we often, we often get to pray when things have gone really pear-shaped. You know, you get that, that message, oh, Oh, please pray, this and that, and the next thing's happened. Oh, please pray. There's nothing wrong with that. Praying under crisis, nothing wrong with that. But what if we put prayer on the other end? And we started with prayer at the beginning of your day before you know what's gone wrong. What if you decided to pray um, with your spouse before a really difficult or big decision or conversation? What if you decided to pray as a family before the day has started? What if you pulled alongside another Christ-following colleague in your workplace and said, let's pray before something's gone wrong? Start with prayer rather than ending with prayer. And, you know, we said, why do we pray? We pray that because there's a gap, and it's that same gap is because the kingdom has come, but the kingdom hasn't fully come, and we live in this gap. And where are you most aware of the gap in your life this week? And pray into that gap. Maybe it's the gap of, I know one day there will be, you know, perfect relational flourishing, but right now, I'm experiencing a lot of relational strife. There's my gap. Pray into that gap. Maybe it's actually suffering with your health. There's a gap between what I know one day I will experience and what I am experiencing in my body right now. You pray into that gap. Maybe you are overly aware of the gap between what you know is possible for a nation like South Africa where there is no inequality and no poverty and no suffering and the large gap between that and what we do experience and pray into that gap this week. Maybe there's a gap between the vision that you know that God is making who God is forming you to be and who you actually are. You can pray into that gap. Let's pray into the gap, not because we should pray more, but because we want to believe truth about God. Read this verse this week in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We forget God's benefits, and that often stops us and holds us back from praying. But remind yourself of the benefits of God and pray from there. But he doesn't only tell us that he prays, but he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Thank you. And I think I said earlier, I think that one of the, the first reasons why he prays with joy is because of his certainty of the future. He knows that day, the setting right of all things, setting of all things at right is coming. 
there's this deep certainty that brings deep peace and deep centeredness and contentedness and joy. But there's another reason that he says as well, and it's quite plain to see. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So their partnership, obviously we spoke about what is their partnership. The first uh, component of it is it was a financial partnership. I mean, they literally did take money to Paul to keep him going. But it was also a relational partnership. In, they, were, they were partnering in the spreading of the gospel. This thing called faith, this thing called mission, this thing called life with Jesus, life in the kingdom, it's deeply personal. And you've heard me say this before. It's deeply personal but it's not private. We are called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, not the six million little brides of Christ all over. No, there's one bride, the church, this incredible web of relationships and partnerships. It's, we're, it's, a, it's one, we're the children of God. This thing was never meant to be done on our own. We live in such a culture that is so obsessed with self-expression and who we're becoming and expressing ourselves and being the best version of you that we forget that this is the best version of me. And I can only be who God has really created me to be in community and in gospel partnership. And I know that there might be some of you among us and maybe listening online where actually it's easier to stand on the fringes and maybe you've, you've dipped your toe into the, the water of community, but it's very cold and you're not ready to dive in yet because it is vulnerable. But there does seem to be this joy on offer to us through the scriptures from relationships that are more than just about friendship, that are more than just about doing fun stuff together and going to wine farms on the weekend and, you know, whatever else you want to do with your friends. I'm just lacking now examples, bike riding or fun things that you do that are also good. There is something deeper that is offered to us, and that is gospel partnerships. And there seems to be such a joy that comes from that. And I want to invite you, if your experience of community has not been one of joy, maybe you can dip your toe a little bit deeper in the water and dive a little bit deeper into community and into gospel partnerships. And there are partnerships sprinkled all across this room, really. We hear stories so often, you know, this guy, so-and-so, he met this person in the water while he was having a surf. Then they started chatting, and then they realized he lives in the same road as this guy, and he had had a conversation, and this guy had already shared his faith with him. And then they invited him to church, and he realized, oh, wow, the person at the front who was going to pray for me, um, he had already told me that I should come to his life group. And they went to the life group, and then from the life group, he met these other people, and then he invited him to an alpha course, and then he went, and suddenly it's, you know, he's like, oh, I think I'm ready to actually give this Jesus thing a go. That's we, there's many stories like that. Maybe that's your story. But it's this intricate web of available, willing people who say yes to partnering with God as the gospel goes out. There's many stories of those. One of my favorite stories is from my friend, Tarandri. I've asked her to uh, come up and share. Yeah, you can come up. <laughs> um, because her story so beautifully depicts... Um, gospel partnership, and, um, and a, a beautiful web of relationships. So, over to you. 
Thank you, Nikki. Did you drop the stage for me? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. No. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm just going to read it so I stick to my script, otherwise I'll take over the summit. Um, <laughs> so uh, my name is T, and I'm married to Diego, and I have four kids. Um, I know some of you. So I grew up in a very, um, quite a liberal Hindu home. I'm the eldest of five children. And I met Diego at 18 in 1996. Yes, we getting old. <laughs> and we started dating. Um, the first moment of gospel partnership in our family story was with Diego's mom, Dolores, who you, many of you will know. Um, and she was already a devoted um, Christ follower for many years and was quite unsettled about her son um, dating someone who wasn't a Christ follower. <laughs> But in prayer, she felt God comforting her, saying, stay out of my way. You don't know what I'm doing in this situation. So our next moment of gospel partnership was through an alpha course that I did. And a year or two later, after investigating where Diego went to every Sunday, I subsequently got baptized <laughs> when I realized um, through God revealing himself to me uh, and through his spirit and many people expressing gospel, uh, gospel community to me, I realized you could accept Jesus and have an actual relationship with your Father in heaven. After this, I entered into gospel partnership and adventure myself, even starting to tell my family about faith. Uh, my family were a much, tough, much harder, a tougher crowd, and they respected my decision, but their hearts were not softened. I had invited my sister, who lives in Cape Town, to church, and she never felt moved by any of it. Um, but in October 2008, after being invited by a friend, again, the gospel partnership, um, at a sermon in Common Ground Rondebosch with a certain Mr. Haynes giving his testimony, she came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Um, our story continues, as do the partnerships at, God, uh, at work, as God drew each person to himself. My brother, the youngest, was picked up every Sunday for six months by my sister in 2012 um, and went to Common Ground Rondebosch, but says he struggled with the concept of grace and he thought it seemed unfair. But one Sunday, hearing it freshly exp um, explained freshly, he also surrendered to his life to Jesus. Subsequently, both my sisters in Sydney and Johannesburg and my mother in KZN have all come to know Jesus in different ways after uh, multiple shared their faith with them, reaching out to them and many people praying over their salvation. So from that word that Dolores had in 1996 and possibly even before... To 2002, oh, 2022. Yeah, yeah. 2022. Like, I was not 2002. I'm doing like a, a, a politician reading of numbers here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, An eternity, um, Jesus had us in his sights and he used the incredible web of available people willing to partner with himself uh, as he drew us to himself. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, T. I just absolutely love that. Just one story of this family of many children and their mom who through many different people and different people making themselves available to God to be used, by the end of it, he has this whole family. Imagine, Dolores, if someone had told you that. I mean, you probably wouldn't have believed it. It's too good to be true. And yet it happened. And, and what could be possible when we decide we're going to partner with one another and God in this extraordinary adventure called mission and called faith and called life in the kingdom. And that's how we find joy. 
we find joy when we are, we're not living for ourselves. We're not self-centered. We're realizing that the world doesn't revolve around us. But we carry other people in our hearts. It's the most freeing thing. And joy comes from that. And joy comes from the certainty in the future that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until that day, the day of Christ Jesus. That brings us deep joy and deep peace. I don't know where your joy levels are at the moment and which one of these things you're kind of going, okay, need to double down on that this week or trust God for that this week. But joy seems to be offered to us in the gospel and in life in the kingdom, there is joy and it's ours for the taking, but sometimes we don't take it. Today, can our invitation be, let's take the joy that is available to us, joy through partnership, joy through prayer, joy through the lack of self-centeredness, carrying other people in our hearts. I'm going to ask us to briefly reflect. We're going to stand as the band comes up. You can stand. <laughs> Just got some very brief questions just to reflect over and then we'll sing which people has God placed in my life that I can carry in my heart ask yourself maybe you want to even jot them down on your phone if you're that type of person what gap is being pointed out to me today that I can intentionally pray into this week Am I more prone to thinking that prayer doesn't change anything or that I actually can change things? Do I have relationships in my life that I can call gospel partnerships? How can I strengthen them or build these type of relationships? How is my joy? How is my view of God? And the fact that he's going to bring things to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We prayed in the prayer meeting this morning and Rod reminded us that what, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about them. What's your view of God like today? How is your joy in God? I invite you to ponder these things and just prayerfully enjoy being in God's presence and trust him for deep joy as we dive deeper into these things. Over to the band.